welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 12, en Francais. Now that we've said our temporary farewells to the Italians, we will now turn to one of the greater losers of this period, France. I have been trying to avoid looking back with too much hindsight on the events of these days, but with France, that task is absurdly difficult. Out of all the eventually victorious allies, none would suffer such catastrophic blows to its power and prestige. The eventual defeat of 1940 was so complete that it overshadows everything that followed and preceded it, even the time of brief jubilation following the end to the First World War. Not even Napoleon's defeat in Russia was so disastrous as to render France a second-tier power on the world stage. It will be important to remember that all the figures I will be discussing in the following set of episodes will only have knowledge of what France had just gone through and accomplished in its greatest victory during World War I, not the ignominy that was going to sweep the nation in just two decades' time. France circa 1919 sees it at a new apex of success, albeit at a human cost so terrible that they couldn't really enjoy the win. It is really hard to overstate just how important and hard-won the collapse of the German Empire had been. The French Third Republic had been born in the ashes of the defeated French Second Empire in 1871. That incarnation of France had fallen under the leadership of a nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte's, who, as Napoleon III, had made the typical autocratic promise of restoring French prestige and standing in the world. Unfortunately for him, his reign coincided with the German state of Prussia's efforts to unite the regional German states into a single nation. Failing to perceive the threat of a united Germany, Napoleon III mostly stood by as Prussia launched wars against Denmark and then Austria to secure its leadership over the other German states. That inaction came back to bite him, as the next target was France. In 1870, he was baited into a conflict when a member of the German royal family became a candidate for the Spanish throne. Napoleon saw this as unacceptable, and as the diplomatic scuffle over the matter escalated, France declared war on Prussia, and ergo the other Germans. The French tried to seize the initiative and invaded Germany, but were soon pushed back into France, and that repulsed army was then besieged by the Germans. Napoleon III personally accompanied a relief army, but was outmaneuvered and besieged himself. Napoleon and the bulk of the French army would later surrender and enter German captivity. That defeat badly discredited the monarchy and allowed for a republican restoration, at least in metropolitan France. The war with the Germans dragged on into 1871, but the issue was not in any doubt. France surrendered and had to pay a gargantuan indemnity as war reparations, something that the French well remembered when it came time to frame the Versailles Treaty. They also had to give over the borderland region of Alsace-Lorraine, which you've already heard all about. It was a crushing defeat, but the New Republic could blame it all on Napoleon III, now in exile which was also perfectly fair, as it was pretty much all his fault. The Republic would be born with a chip on its shoulder, but not the stain of absolute failure. That new legitimacy, though, was predicated on national success being greater than that under the Empire, which meant that sooner or later, there would have to be another confrontation with the Germans, and a balancing of the scales. Alsace-Lorraine was the core grievance, one that pathologically drove the French nation. As time went on, though, and Germany's industrial capabilities and population base started to explode in size, it became clear that France would have to shoot for much more than recovery of a single province if security were to be assured. 
You see, France did not fare quite as well in the late 1800s compared to its eastern neighbor, or most of the other great powers for that matter. Their population base grew slowly, which in the days of mass production and conscription meant that there were fewer workers to boost the economy and fewer soldiers available to defend the country. There was also a lag in the economy, and while France was certainly a major industrial and commercial power, it was dwarfed by Germany. The rapid acquisition of a colonial empire in Africa and Asia in the 1880s and 90s provided some economic and demographic support. These regions were not yet properly integrated enough to swing the outcome of any future conflict. So, France turned to forging alliances in order to corral the Germans. First, there were the Russians, who were all too happy to form bloc against the German and Habsburg empires. Second, and much more reluctantly, were the British, whom were loath to commit to any continental conflict, but had been antagonized by a German naval buildup into conditionally joining with France's Entente alliance. Technically, the condition of British partnership was Germany violating Belgian neutrality, but by 1914, the Germans had so thoroughly antagonized them that everyone assumed they'd back the French. Thus, with a pair of gigantic allies, France approached the coming conflict with a great deal of confidence and enthusiasm, which turned out to be a bad way of looking at things. Best laid plans and all that. The strategy to handle Germany was simple. France and Russia simultaneously would invade Germany. Britain shuts down their trade with the blockade. Bang, bang, boom. Everybody's home by Christmas. But that didn't play out exactly right. The Germans rolled through Belgium and occupied the choicest and most industrially developed parts of France in the northeast. France, for its part, flung the bulk of its army into Alsace-Lorraine in an effort to drive the Hun back across the Rhine. It was probably for the best that this didn't go well as if the French had entered Germany, they might not have been able to hightail it back west in time to save Paris. But they did, and both sides were forced to settle in for those four long, infamous years of trench warfare. Things didn't go well elsewhere, either. Russia proved to be the proverbial colossus with clay feet and lost successive battles to the Germans. The Habsburg armies were mauled, but they remained cohesive and more than once pulled themselves back from the brink. Bulgaria and Turkey joined in the east and proceeded to defy their low expectations in a positive way, for the central powers. Italy joined with the Entente and proceeded to defy their low expectations in a much worse way, as they made zero progress for a huge loss of life. Great Britain did its bit at sea, but its army needed to be virtually built from scratch, and even then, much of their troops had to go abroad to fight on other fronts. France was under siege and stuck doing the heavy lifting against a much stronger Germany for most of the war. Now, I'm giving you this terribly rough overview of the First World War because it was here that the French psyche really started to take a turn for the worse, and some of the seeds of trauma that would cause so much trouble later started to emerge. By by 1917, there had been numerous failed offensives on the Entente side, with the British having no better luck than the French and the Russians being gassed after the Brusilov offensive in the east. And then the Battle of Verdun had driven the whole country to the brink. The French had suffered millions of casualties to this point, and there was no indication that things were going to get better as the war dragged on. Everything came to a head at the front, when huge portions of the army had a so-called mutiny. I say so-called because it was really more of a strike than a traditional mutiny. The core demand was just not to have their lives thrown away as recklessly as the past three years had allowed. In both Verdun and the mutiny, France was saved by a general named Philippe Pétain, 
a name you will need to remember for future reference one day. He was stern against the Germans, but handled the strikers in the army with a calmness that prevented its disintegration. It was a close-run thing, though, and while the scale of the mutinies was kept largely quiet in the press, it did demonstrate to the leadership that morale had hit a rock bottom. The feeling was mutual back on the home front, as calls for a white peace, or in other words, a peace to return to the status quo before the war broke out, started to become louder. There were several instances of some politicians quietly putting out feelers to the Germans to end the war, which might sound defeatist, but keep in mind, in 1917, there wasn't a reliable light at the end of the tunnel. The French had expended most of its manpower. The British weren't much better off. Russia was falling apart, and America had just entered the war and was still a long ways from the fighting. Many French leaders had concluded the sacrifice was no longer worth the, uh, well, whatever it was they were fighting for at that point. It was in this environment that Georges Clemenceau became Prime Minister of France in November 1917. Few thought much of him, or that he would even be successful in the role. But under his guidance, the war would be over in a year. For much of the conflict, the actual government of France had taken a back seat and let the generals manage the conflict as they saw fit, mostly just making sure the army was supplied as well as possible and replacements were found for the endless casualties. Clemenceau brought a new change of pace almost immediately. He vowed a complete commitment to defeating Germany and directed all the government's energies to the war effort. Opposition was not tolerated. The leader of the peace movement, Joseph Callot, was arrested in prison for his efforts to broker a simple peace. Clemenceau also secured French leadership of the Supreme War Council, the body set up to coordinate the combined Entente war effort, which de facto made France the leader of the overall alliance. Public confidence was soon restored, which, given the final German push in the spring of 1918, uh, that was vital for the nation's survival. At this critical juncture, the nation did not break. The political and military leadership of the country endured the shock of the German breakthrough and held until the invaders played out their strength. Keep that outcome in mind for future comparisons. Now, we've been over the end of the war already. The Germans sue for peace and the Versailles Treaty is imposed onto the vanquished, cue the rejoicing and the high fives, break out the wine and the cheese platters, the dark days are over. Well, sort of. It's one of those things that Tolkien and his fantasy novels get so right. The terrible feeling you can never truly go back. In victory, the French found themselves unable to go back to that time of national confidence and energy right before the war. The world had changed forever, and what was to come was more uncertain than ever before. Given just how bloody and destructive the war had been, this was probably a scary thought for the average Frenchman. Let's take a quick look at where France found itself after Versailles. The most obvious change was that France was now the preeminent power on the European continent. This had not been true since 1871, a solid 50 years previous. Yeah, Great Britain still had the biggest, baddest empire, but they weren't able to fight a battle like the French could. And unlike Europe 50 years previously, there wasn't a whole lot of competition. Italy was a friend. Germany was a traumatized mess. The Habsburgs were finally, finally gone and Russia was in the throes of a terrifyingly violent metamorphosis. They were the man now, which is exactly what they had wanted. Except the French at this point might have forgotten what being the man meant. It meant responsibility. It meant commitments. 
and they might not have been in the best position for that. In the early 20s, French troops would be deployed in small batches across Central Europe, the Baltics, Turkey, and even southern Russia. This was seen as necessary by the government due to the new preeminence in world affairs the country had. And as you might imagine, this was met with at very least deep ambivalence by a country which had just gone through the meat grinder. The leadership might have recognized that solidifying power in Europe depended on some intervention, but the people had lost all interest in adventurism, which limited the scale of these uh, deployments. That kind of sets me up for the next part of my little introduction here, the hellscape of French demographics. Let's get ready for some truly horrifying numbers. About a fifth of the population was pressed into the army during World War I. 20%, a fifth. Giving the army an overall strength of 8.5 million soldiers. This was over the course of the entire war, mind you, because by war's end there had been 1.4 million war dead and 4.6 million wounded soldiers. Now, I don't really like just throwing statistics at you, but just look at those numbers. The population was only 40 million. So you can imagine what kind of effect having over 8 million people getting yanked off the street and then 6 million of those guys either dying or suffering injury might be. France became the leading power of Europe at the price of not being able to enforce its leadership anywhere. This democratic shortfall would exacerbate the pre-existing feelings of vulnerability when the country looked at the soaring populations abroad. And if you ever wondered why the French were so gung-ho about building gargantuan bunkers in the 30s, it's this. This is the reason. But the fun isn't over there, either. There are so many other changes the French have to reckon with beyond how to field an army when everybody is dead or mangled. Most pressing was the small issue of the northeast of the country being devastated beyond belief. As I mentioned earlier, this was the industrial heartland of France. Most of the iron ore and coal mines, plus the steel industries that went along with it. The Germans had occupied these regions in the first six months of the war and exploited them relentlessly. Workers were pressed into German service, and much of the industrial equipment was shipped east into the empire. In 1918, the Germans were forced to abandon most of the region, but they made sure to collapse or flood the mines and strip whatever industrial equipment was left. The place would have to be rebuilt, and a large part of the reparations the French were due to receive were specifically to address this region. Something to note, though, is that the French didn't just sit on their asses behind the lines while the war was going on. Yes, most of the French pre-war industry was situated in the northeast, but that didn't stop the government from establishing new industrial centers elsewhere. Before the war, most of the south and the west was primarily rural, and for the nation as a whole, the focus of production was on consumer goods. The war not only forced heavy industries into these regions, it also industrialized the capital of Paris for the first time. This in turn created a shift in the character of French life. No longer was industrialized life isolated to certain regions. Now the factory was a common site wherever there were population centers to support them. This in turn also meant that there were now factory workers where previously there had not been. And let's face facts here, guys. Rural farmers are by and large pretty conservative folks. Their profession keeps them on a razor's edge where a bad harvest can ruin any, any operation. They stick to what they know will work which in a democracy means that they don't swing very far to the left unless they get offered some sweetheart deals, which the conservatives are usually too happy to offer themselves anyway. With the new prevalence of factories, well, that changes things. All of a sudden, you have an urban proletariat that has large bodies of workers all operating the new factory floors. 
which means that socialist politics now have a broader outlet nationwide than they would have before. Many of the soldiers called up to do the actual fighting were also drawn from the peasantry. After all, you didn't want to pull too many factory workers making the shells and bullets off the production lines. Most French peasants in those days were of limited means, which is to say, desperately poor, and as such, they didn't see a whole lot of the world. The war meant that millions would leave the homestead and see parts of the country that they had only heard of, if only on leave. Granted, most of them were doomed to an early death or some kind of physical wound, but for those who made it out in mostly one piece, their eyes had been open to the greater world. Which, believe me, Paris kind of has that effect on people. Having made it out of the maelstrom of shrapnel with their lives, they really didn't care to go back to the impoverished life out in the countryside. They would probably rather just go be impoverished in a more uh, glitzy city. And for many, that's exactly what they did. Now, France was an appropriately urbanized nation already, but this new influx of city dwellers would add further fire to the leftist political scene. And what a scene that was shaping out to be. With the advent of the Soviet Union out east, there was now a tangible bastion of leftism to look towards for guidance and as an example for back home. The Socialists had already been an established and fairly successful faction in politics up to this point, and like other such parties in Europe, had largely kept an arm's length from working with other groups for fear that their message would be watered down by potential partners closer to the center. This arrangement actually kind of suited the establishment, as it also meant they could keep the socialists at an arm's length, and they didn't pose a genuine threat to their status quo. However, the appearance of the Soviet Union and the Red Uprisings happening across Central Europe changed that calculus, as now a revolution was a distinct possibility at home. Those on the left noticed this too, and the previous calls for socialist reform would gradually change in tone to sound more like demands. This isn't to say that there would be a swerve towards leftism like, say, in Italy, or that there would be a red scare bad enough that, that the establishment would desperately appoint a dictator, but it did mean that the divide between right and left would become increasingly intractable. Before World War I, the country had held together out of fear of German hegemony. Crises had certainly cropped up, see the Dreyfus Affair as the most notorious example, but the country held together out of necessity. Now that the great enemy to the east had been temporarily cowed, it gave French politicians a chance to really go in against each other, which is something I look forward to breaking down in more detail in these episodes. This was also the era when the French Empire reached its height. An exhaustive overview of the French colonial empire would be, well, exhausting, so I'll cover the choicest and most important parts. The closest and most integrated was Algeria, which was recognized as part of metropolitan France, which is to say it was considered an integral part of the nation. This was the destination of a large amount of French colonization and economic development. The local arrangement was that the colonists would have the privilege of representation in national government, while the native population would go without, which created the unenviable situation where Algeria was both a land to be exploited, but also held very close to the mother country. Morocco and Tunisia were also part of the North African portion of the empire, although they were more recent additions and not as well integrated. However, all three territories boasted large urban populations and attracted a good deal of migration and investment from the core of France. Across the Sahara was French West Africa and Equatorial Africa. These were, in most cases, new additions, although a handful of small colonies along the coast had been national holdings for centuries. These regions were just mind-bogglingly huge geographically, uh, and equally diverse in their component cultures, and 
and they were also challenging to navigate from a topographical standpoint. They were not well integrated into the national economy, although the sheer size of the territories meant that they still contributed valuable resources and over a half million soldiers and laborers during the war. It was in these regions that the classically denigrating idea of exploiting the natives while furiously claiming to elevate them really reared its head. Out east, there was French Indochina, encompassing modern-day Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. The French presence is mostly rem- remembered in the U.S. because of its associations with our own misadventures in the region. But for France, it was an invaluable source of rubber and a target of some industrial development. The final piece were the new French territories of Syria and Lebanon. These were fresh conquests from the defunct Ottoman Empire after the war. They served to bring France into the Middle East. Why that seemed like a good idea, even at the time, could only be chalked up to the brain disease of imperialism, as they pretty much immediately became a source of conflict, and France would have to fight a colonial war to keep those territories, which we'll get into a little bit later. This is a long list of territories, and most of them were only within the empire for, at most, 40 years. All of them, except for parts of Algeria, really weren't integrated into the economy and didn't really offer a whole lot just yet. It's only going to be later in our narrative when these territories become more important to France, but we will be getting back to them at some point. The last thing I want to cover about France immediately post-Versailles is its place in the world now that the burden of beating Germany had been lifted. I already mentioned France had the largest standing army in Europe now, albeit one that didn't really have a whole lot in the way of reserve manpower, and as I talked about earlier, there wasn't a whole lot of competition. The League of Nations had been established with France as a leading member, alongside Great Britain, although in fairness to the League, nobody had really attempted anything like it before, and as such, nobody was quite sure how it was supposed to work. A similar feeling went for Central Europe. Borders fluctuated in the collapse of the empires, and nations were carved out of what had been previously been provinces answering to greater uh, territorial units. Nobody knew if any of these new countries were actually viable. Each one had to establish their own currency, their own laws, their own administrations. Even nations already on the map either had to deal with absorbing new lands and peoples, or learn how to deal with sudden losses of the same. This is all very relevant to France, as before World War I, they had looked east to Russia to act as a partner to sort of guarantee stability. That wasn't an option now, and the new states were an uncertain lot. It would take a great deal of time and effort for them to become beneficial allies to France, assuming that was even a possibility. For now, France would have to lean on its remaining strength largely alone, and hope that the weakness of Germany would continue. And if all else failed, maybe the new league could actually make an impact on world affairs. It certainly wasn't the worst state of affairs, but it really did leave something to be desired. But to their credit, the French people were not ones to rest on their laurels. Now that we know where they were and where they had come from, we can finally get started on just where they're going now. This was an era of quasi-French hegemony in Europe, weak as it was. No matter the problems I've described, they were the incumbents, and if there were going to be any challengers to the peace, they would have to climb uphill to topple France down. The first order of business on the minds of most normal Frenchmen was not digging the boot into Germany and not traveling the globe in search of fresh conquests, though. It was simply a desire to go back to the days of normalcy. Which, of course, when people say that after a war, they don't mean, hey, let's go back to all the old problems. They mean, let's look forward to futures with far less explosions in them. 
for a variety of reasons, that was not really going to happen, and France is going to struggle to find its footing in the years to come. As we pick up the story next week, we'll get into the French political scene as of 1919 and look at the attempts to chart a new path forward in a world shaken to pieces. See you then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.